exactly five o'clock to the second, and he walks in. Okay, says it's live. Sergio, let me know, but he says it's live. Oh, let's see here. Okay, we got to go to Psalm 119, verse 145. That is Kuf. And it says, I cry out with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I cry out to you, save me, and I will keep your testimonies. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness, O Lord. Revive me according to your justice. They draw near who follow after wickedness. They are far from your law. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. Okay, Sergio says we are live. Thank you, Sergio. Thank you. Let's see here. What do we have here? I got the uh, message from Bruce in Australia. And I'll just read it. It's the kind of thing you can't really make short without taking something important out of there. I am having surgery to try and stop bleeding from minimum three locations in my lower stomach. Something, I don't know what it is, some part of him, and in my small intestines. The loss of, excuse me, the loss of blood and iron has required blood transfusions and iron infusions every three months. I would be dead if I were a Jehovah's Witness. The surgery is to stop the heart being worked beyond its very limited ability after the heart attack. I received the confirmed diagnosis of non-alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver. They can only heal that with a liver transplant, and that's a huge risk with the heart and bleeding. My asking for prayer is not to preserve my life. Going home to Jesus would be so wonderful, but the risk of more heart attacks and or strokes is what scares me. So that so that, and the ability and courage to share the gospel of Jesus every step of the way. The teachings of the gospel and the correct context of the Bible for good doctrine by... Oh, skip that. Uh, okay, anyway, he, uh, he uh, just uh, asks for strength to keep sharing the gospel, and uh, that's what he wants to do until the Lord takes him home. So there you Is go. Is that the great teacher in here in saying that? Uh, no, I don't know what that... The last sentence is all blurry, and I can't read it, so... Um, Let's see here. Kevin Newby in Santa Barbara would like to move to this area. He would hope for a 50-mile commute within Sarasota area. So if uh, he needs a housemate, a roommate, he's 62, single, never been divorced. He's never been married, so he doesn't smoke. He's known the Lord for 40-plus years, and uh, so he's just asking if anybody in the area has, you know, a room, you know, a house to uh, partially rent, he'd like to move from he kind of made a point about leaving California, which is not a bad idea. Um, and then Claudia, who is uh, with us on Sundays, she fell last week and hurt herself, and her body has just been having trouble because of this week. So we'll keep her in prayer. And then Becky in um, uh, Colorado, I heard from her today, and she's got some anxiety issues. And so we want to keep her in prayer as well. So there you go with those. And uh, I guess before we read this, we'll go ahead and go in prayer. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to come and be in your presence and to uh, share in your word and in fellowship with other believers, both here and the live streaming people that we cherish so dearly. 
And Lord, we uh, do pray for all of these people and any others that are having their own difficulties or trials, that you would be with them and help them through those things and at the same time be a comfort to them. Let them know your presence is there with them and help them to have that reassurance. And Lord, we certainly thank you for this precious word. What a gift and a treasure it is. And so we hope that uh, it'll be handled properly and that we won't abuse it and uh, that what is said will be in accord with your will. We do pray this, that you'll be exalted through the study, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, it is today, 16, 15, 14, must be 13th today. Is that right? Okay, I got a couple of yeses. So here we go, May 13th. Let's see what we have here. Uh, I'm guessing, you know, 13th. They say yes. Okay, uh, May 13th. Once upon a time, a worldly city became spiritual, even if only for a time. Uh, I don't know if I can pronounce this guy's name right. Girolamo Savonarolo. Ola. Anyway, was born in 1452 in Ferrara, Italy. He was sensitive and serious boy who was enamored with the study of religion. He started training as a physician, but his idealism caused him to drop out and join the Dominican Order to fight the evils of the world. He transferred to the Covenant of San Marco in Florence in 1482 and rose to the position of prior. Savo, I can't pronounce his name, anyway, was deeply distressed by the corruption within the Catholic Church. He'd be just as distressed today. And what he saw as a lack of piety among its leaders. He spent his time praying, fasting, and teaching the novice monks. By 1491, he had become a famous he had become famous as a preacher. The primary themes of his sermons were God's pending judgment and the need for repentance. Now, God's pending judgment all the way back in the 1450s through, you know, 1500s, and we're still waiting for it. People say that it's slow in coming. No, the Lord is patient, but it is coming. Um, let's see here. He also preached against the worldliness of the clergy, good for him, the evils of the ruling class, and the general corruption of secular living. His criticisms of the ruling class made this guy, in effect, the spiritual leader of the Democratic Party when it came to power in Florence in 1494. He gained additional popularity when he was seated and succeeded in convincing the French king to give up occupation of the city after he had conquered it. Many considered him to be a prophet. Um, once again, can't pronounce his name, used his power and popularity to bring about reform of church and state. He is considered to be one of the early reformers of the Catholic Church. Although he didn't disagree with the organization or teachings of the church, as did later reformers, he did believe in justification by faith and in living a godly life. He became a virtual dictator over Florence, and under his leadership, it underwent a startling transformation. Businessmen restored ill-gotten gains. There was much Bible reading, and the churches were crowded. Um, if you hear that noise, I'm sorry. I didn't. Uh, that's Israel's being bombed again, and uh, I sh should move that away from here. I'll do that after I'm done reading. Uh, the churches were crowded. At the same time, this guy made many enemies, especially within the clergy. Pope Alexander VI hated him because he openly condemned the Pope's character and practices and did not acknowledge his authority. We've got some Catholic bishops in America right now that are in the same position as that, maybe some around the world as well, but I know some in America that 
absolutely are opposed to this pope, and I'm sure he hates them as well. In 1495, the pope summoned this guy to Rome, but he refused to go. The pope then commanded him to discontinue all his preaching. He obeyed for a while and spent his time studying. However, during this time, when he was supposed to be inactive, he succeeded in turning a usually riotous annual carnival into a time of giving to the poor and singing hymns in the street. Next, the Pope attempted to gain control over him by ordering the Monastery of San Marco to be incorporated into new grouping of covenants that would be more subject to the authority of Rome. This guy defied the order. He his spiritual influence over Florence was so strong that during the carnival season in 1497, children gathered indecent books and pictures and made a bonfire of them in the main square while singing hymns. The bonfire of vanities was an affront to many of the city's moderates. With the passage of time, community support for him and his strict views started to wane, and his power began to erode. Pope Alexander VI sensed the changing heart of the people toward him and decided to make the most of it. On May 13, 1497, Alexander VI excommunicated him from the church on the grounds that he had disobeyed the Pope's commands. The Pope ordered Florence to silence him or send him to Rome for trial. The fickle public adorned, or I'm sorry, abandoned him as the city government changed hands. The new government arrested him on April 14. In April 1498, he was tried for sedition and heresy and was brutally tortured. On May 23, 1498, he was publicly hanged and his body burned. Makes you think, right, let me stop right there before we go on and read you something right from here. Right here, hang on just one second. Where are we? Um, Mystery Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Well, I typed the commentary on that three days ago because I did verse 17, 9 today, but that'll be out in about eight more days and you'll know who my opinion is on that. Maybe you can get a hint from why I stopped. Um, we don't need to have an opinion on it. It's very explicit in the Bible who the great harlot is, but we'll go on. Um, he was uh, hanged and his body burned. In the succeeding years, the majority of citizens of Florence went back to their old ways, yet many permanently changed. One of those was a sculptor named Michelangelo. And they have a reflection. This guy insisted that all Christians, especially religious leaders, practice what they preach. Would your family and friends say you practice what you preach? In our own strength, it is impossible to live a Christian life, but if we give our allegiance to Jesus Christ, he will enable us to live more like him. And from Romans 8.29, God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to be like his son. Good stuff there. Um, can we help you, ma'am? Oh, I didn't see who that was until she turned around, and it appears to be my wife. Okay, let me get rid of this iPad. I'm sorry for interrupting the class like this, but I don't want that ringing, and I don't know how loud it is on the microphone, so let me put that over here. And um, that way, Israel is just, the past three hours I've been here, it's been nonstop, nonstop uh, bombs coming in. Three came in from Lebanon, uh, which uh, the report was, after that happened, uh, that Israel believes that it was Palestinians in Lebanon trying to incite Lebanon to 
uh, you know, Israel to respond and then get Lebanon into the war, because then Israel will have a war on two fronts. So I do not know if they responded or not, but things are getting very tense over in Israel. It's uh, a time for us to pray for Israel. Yes, they are not right with the Lord, but they have been chosen by God to go back into that land for his purposes. They are his people, though they are disobedient right now, and his purposes will be effected in them. But in the meantime, they're going to go through a lot of trouble. So we would hope that uh, people would pray for them and that uh, uh, we don't have much confidence that the current administration will do anything to help him. It seems like he's doing the exact opposite. But President Trump has come out and stood with them uh, during this time of crisis. So um, I also got a message just minutes ago from Sergio, and he said in Nazareth, they have currently continuously, continuously, he played a video of it for me a night ago, and I couldn't believe it, three hours now of constant boom, 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 bombs going off in Nazareth. Um, He thinks what it is, because he's up on a hill a little bit out of the main area, and you can hear this, but he thinks that it is flashbang grenades, you know, things like that, because it's very loud, and it's been going on for days, but today it's been going on for three hours straight. So there is trouble over there. And we would pray that uh, people would be safe and kept safe uh, during that time. Uh, Iron Dome is doing a great job. If you've seen any of the videos, they're very impressive to watch. But at the same time, how many how many uh, Iron Dome missiles do they have? I mean, they've literally had thousands of missiles come in, and they've got to respond to them. So I don't know what the uh, back you know the the storage com- uh, capacity they have there. So at some point, unless uh, Gaza runs out of missiles, maybe Israel will first. I do not know. Um, Just a very short update on that for you, but uh, I'm sure you're all aware of that, and that will not be my focus on Sunday because the whole world is talking about it, and every prophecy guy in the world has done 10 videos on it this week, so Sunday I will probably not talk about that much at all, but just so you know what's going on today with that. Um, Let's see here. We've got that done, and we've got this done, and uh, before I start, last week, um, I think it was last week when... uh, uh, I was talking, I mentioned uh, Chris out in the projects, and I said that she's very good about presenting the gospel to people, and I made a comment which um, was misunderstood. I said um, uh, she may not know the rest of the Bible, but she gets this right, and that was a way of stressing, uh, you know, I will say sometimes, well, I don't know anything about that, even though I know something about it, but I know this, I'll stress something, and so uh, my intent was not to say she doesn't know the rest of the Bible. My intent was to stress that she knew this particular issue. You know, I could say um, uh, the rapture. Well, I don't know about all of the prophecy doctrine, but I know about this. We are going to have a pre-tribulation rapture. So just so you're aware of that, is that I don't want to diminish somebody's knowledge of the Bible, and I have no idea about that individual's knowledge of the Bible. Um, Okay, so here we go. Let's see. We're in uh, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 11. 2, verse 11. Okay, and I'm going to start right there because that's the start of a new paragraph, at least in this Bible. Therefore, remember that you once, you, yeah, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Okay, obviously the Gentiles are uncircumcised as far as you know, ritual circumcision. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, for health reasons or whatever. We have people that get circumcised in America all the time that are not Jews. Um, That's not done for religious reasons. It's done for, you know, just whatever reason uh, people decide. 
Okay, this is what he's talking about here as far as circumcision. People are either uncircumcision, generally speaking of Gentiles, even if they're circumcised. Um, and that's one thing about the nations of the world. All around Israel, throughout their history, there have been people that circumcise, okay? And they're still called the uncircumcision because they didn't do it according to the law of Moses, eighth day circumcision, etc. Okay, so uh, that is what he's talking about, and, uh, you know, specifically. But there are other things that are involved in that. If you want to know more about that, you can go back and watch the Romans 2 commentary where he talks about it. But for now, uh, comment on Ephesians 2.11. Paul gathers up the lesson of the previous verses into a summary thought with the word, therefore. He is asking the Ephesians to reflect on what he has said and to consider their new status and position in Christ. Early in chapter 1, he said this to them. Let me take you there to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. He said, uh, where is that? Uh, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay, so he said in those verses that God had gathered together all things in Christ. He explained this as those things both which are in heaven and which are on the earth. He then noted that even they, the Ephesian Gentiles, had believed and they were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, in order to show the magnitude of what this means to them in particular, he asked them to remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, were now to be considered in a different light. They were without Christ and they were not included in the overall redemptive plans of God concerning the nation of Israel. Israel was set apart from the nations. They were set apart for a particular reason, dealing with the law of Moses and God's, you know, uh, covenant with them as well, but specifically to demonstrate to the world God's righteous standards through the people of Israel and to show that none of them, his chosen people included, could not meet those standards. Therefore, Paul calls it a tutor. It is something that is to lead us to an understanding of our need for Jesus Christ. Not just Israel's need for Jesus Christ, but the entire world. We look at them as the example, and from there we should learn the lesson. Unfortunately, I keep getting these emails. It seems like daily. I, it's, it's so sad. People will email me and they'll say that, you know, they listen to the studies, but they, they want to make sure that they have the information right to talk to their friends. And their friends constantly telling them, you're not going to be saved because you're not observing the law of Moses. What do I tell them? And that's why I stress this all the time. I bring it up again and again so that you are fully versed in this particular issue, is that the law of Moses served, past tense, its purpose. It is done, okay? The verses, once again, you can write them down, are um, Hebrews 7.18, Hebrews 8.13, Hebrews 10.9, Colossians 2.14. Those are just the explicit ones. It's nailed to the cross. It is set aside. It is obsolete. It is um, annulled. Okay, but there are many, many references that Paul gives, especially in the book of uh, Romans, but also in Galatians, to tell you that the law of Moses is done. Okay, the reason why I don't include 
Paul most of the time is because a lot of these Hebrew Roots Movement people will even claim that Paul is apostate, and they don't want to listen to him. They're going to get their doctrine from what Jesus says in the Gospels and maybe the book of Hebrews, and they're just going to leave it at that. Not understanding that what Jesus said in the Gospels was directed to who? To the Jews. He's speaking to Israel under the law. Okay. Um, one of the verses that I gave the uh, person just a day ago, I said, you know, when you approach this person, make sure you take them to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19. And we'll go there right now because it's on my mind. Let me see where I stopped there. Okay. It's on my mind. We might as well get that. It's a great verse to give them. In 1 Corinthians 7, where is it? 5, 6, 7, 19. It says, circumcision is nothing. Okay, circumcision is nothing, and the Jews are supposed to be circumcised, and it's a part of the law of Moses. And he says, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And these Hebrew Roots Movement people will even cite Paul there, and they'll say, say, you have to keep God's commandments. And I say, well, read the whole verse then and explain it. Because if circumcision is nothing, and yet it's mandated under the law of Moses, very clearly in the book of Leviticus, circumcised on the eighth day, then he cannot be speaking about the law of Moses. If circumcision is nothing and it's a part of the law of Moses, then it tells you that the law of Moses is not what Paul is referring to. He's speaking about the commandments of God. This is the commandments of the commandment of God and what we did it last week, John 6, 29, that you believe in the one whom he sent. Okay, the law of Moses was simply a tutor. It was a stepping stone on the way to what Christ would do for us. So that's a great verse to give to people if you want to just set them up and set them up in a little theological trap is to say, okay, well, we're supposed to keep the commandments of God. Now tell me what that means. And they'll go through and they'll say, yeah, you need to observe the law of Moses. And well, obviously you're wrong because circumcision is a part of the law of Moses. And then from there, you can hopefully get them to understand right doctrine. But uh, usually people that are into the Hebrew roots movement will not budge on it. They'll just ignore you or they'll call you something and leave. So get ready for that as well. We'll read that again. It says, and that was which marked them out, the circumcision, as separate from the rest of the people groups of the world. At that time, they were, as Paul says, called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In this, he uses the abstract for the concrete. Uncircumcision for uncircumcised and circumcision for circumcised. Okay, so he's using an abstract form in order to give you a concrete lesson. They are circumcised, we are uncircumcised. Not Paul, we we Gentiles, okay? Paul is obviously circumcised. But um, it was, oh, however, he adds in a note of irony. It was the circumcision who called the uncircumcised the uncircumcision. It was a note of contempt. They looked down on those who were not a part of them as a cruel master might look down upon a dirty slave. You will get this today. If you go to uh, the Hasidic Jews and, you know, you walk through their neighborhood, they're, they're going to give you that today at times. Uh, they, you know, they think that they're better than you because they have the sign of circumcision. Okay, and as I've said in the past, circumcision as a sign means, and it's very clear in Scripture when the word sign or ot is used in the Old Testament, a sign anticipates something else. It is not the thing in and of itself. You have signs and wonders. A wonder is the thing. When you have a wonder, God, uh, you know, um, what does he do? He uh, separates the Red Sea, for example. Okay, that's a wonder. That is the thing itself. But a sign is not. A sign anticipates something else. Always. It is not the thing. Now, the Jews will say, 
this is the sign of my circumcision, therefore I am righteous. And that is incorrect. The sign anticipates what will make you righteous. The sign anticipates Jesus Christ. So they don't seem to understand that. They have not clearly thought through the meaning of the words in the Hebrew, which, you know, is the source of their, you know, their instruction. But they haven't sat down and thought it through. The righteousness comes from the fulfillment of the sign, and the fulfillment of the sign is Jesus Christ. He is the one that cut the sin nature as it travels from father to child, father to child, okay? And so he is the fulfillment of circumcision, and hence circumcision is no longer necessary. That is what Paul is telling us there. They will look down on you as a dirty slave. The irony is that Paul gives back the term called to the circumcision. In other words, the words, they are so-called circumcision, but that term is now just as derogatory as uncircumcision once was, according to Paul. And as I said, in the book of Romans, you can get that from Romans chapter 2. We'll take you there, and just so you understand this, it's been a while since we were in Romans, and he says there, he makes a pun. I was talking to somebody about this this week as well. We'll go back to 25, but I want to get down to 28 for the point I want to make. 25, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, you and me were uncircumcised, and I'm not saying I am or not, I'm making an example of Gentiles, okay? Um, uh, therefore, if an uncircumcised man, a Gentile, keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In other words, He's not circumcised, but he's doing the things of the law, and therefore he is a keeper of the law. That's the point he's making there. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, he's speaking to the Jew, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. Every single Jew on this planet has violated the law of Moses. Every one of them. And we know that because if they didn't, they would still be alive today. The man who does the things of the law will live by them. They're already tainted with sin when they're born, but they continue to sin through their lives, evidenced in the Old Testament scriptures, which is a point of having the scriptures for 1,400 years, is to show that nobody was able to do this. So, and will not the physically uncircumcised, that Gentile, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. Well, what does that mean? Because can a Gentile fulfill the law? Absolutely not. None of us can. So what is the point that he is making? I'll read it again. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you? He has fulfilled the law through Christ's fulfillment of it. It is imputed to us as righteousness. Okay? And so we will judge those who are circumcised but did not fulfill the law. That's the point that Paul is making. If you hear a real loud sound, that is not thunder. They are taking up the street next to us, and so you're going to hear a lot of banging. I apologize about that. Okay? And then he goes on and he says in verse 28, here it is, for he, that means a, a, a circumcised person, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is from, who is not from men, but from God. And what he is saying there is he's making a pun. 
he says, but he is a Jew. The word Jew comes from the word Judah, okay? And Judah means praise, okay? So he makes a pun there. I'll read it again. For he is not a Jew. He is not a praise who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, a praise who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. He's saying that you, even though you're not circumcised, are the praise of God if you are in Christ. You have fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, and therefore you have attained something that the Jew who is circumcised has not attained. Okay, so once again, this is the kind of stuff that you can show the Hebrew Roots Movement people. Hopefully, they'll pay attention. But uh, one of the things I've uh, come to the conclusion, and I'm sure I've said this before, is that people get into cults. They get into crazy things because they want to be controlled. This is human nature wants to be controlled. We want somebody to tell us what to do. We want somebody to tell us what is right and what is wrong. Okay, this is human nature. And some people take it to a great extreme. And they don't want to have to do the hard work in order to find out what is right or what is not. Okay, and that's why I'm always telling people, read your Bible, because that's the hard work. Study your Bible, and then make sure that you check everything you're told, because that is hard work. But people, and this is the sad part, people would rather drink poisoned Kool-Aid than to do the hard work. That's the sad part about this. And that's why we say that the term drinking the Kool-Aid, well, if you're not old enough to understand what that means, that means that there was a group of people from California under a guy named Reverend Jim Jones, and he claimed to have all these spiritual insights, and eventually they all moved down to French Guiana. Or was it, was it French or British Guiana? Anyway, they moved down to Guiana, and while they were down there, he got them so into this cult that eventually when they started to be investigated, he had them all drink Kool-Aid, and many of them did it voluntarily. Some of them were forced, but most of these people just willingly drank Kool-Aid rather than do the hard work. And the same thing is true with anybody in a cult. I don't care if you're into Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. You will spend more of your effort, more of your time defending what is wrong than you ever would just doing the hard work up front. And that's what's important about this. Read your Bible, understand what Paul is saying in context, and I don't think I can say anything else beyond that. Do the hard work. As long as you're willing to do the hard work, things will be okay with you. But if you're not, you are in the bondage of somebody. Everybody wants to be in bondage. People want to be in bondage in the government. We're seeing that right now. We've had great freedom in this country for many, many years. But freedom involves getting up in the morning and working. Freedom involves sometimes going off to war to defend what you believe. Freedom involves very difficult things. And there's a point where people have had so much abundance in the land, so much prosperity, that now they want to take it easy. And the children don't want to do the hard thing. And instead, what do they do? What we're seeing in the nation right now. Because people want control. They know that this control is coming, and they think that this control will be good. And they'll find out that it's not. But this is the way that things of the world are. Um, poison. Ooh. Yeah, poison Kool-Aid. Absolutely. Did I say that or did, did I? Not. Okay, poisoned Kool-Aid. <laughs> Uh, they are so-called circumcision, but that term is now just as derogatory as uncircumcision was, okay? The Jews want to look down at us, and then all of a sudden it turns around on them. The reason for this is that it was made in the flesh by hands. It is hands that circumcise a child on the eighth day. 
He will explain the irony in the verses ahead, demonstrating that the external sign no longer meant anything at all. As I said, it is a sign. The sign is anticipating something. Once the sign is fulfilled, it is no longer needed. It doesn't matter what sign is in Scripture. If that sign is fulfilled, a star will come out of Jacob. When the star came, we don't need the sign anymore. The sign has arrived. He is the fulfillment of that, and therefore there is no more anticipation of any fulfillment of the sign. The sign is done. Okay, anytime you see the word sign, if it is properly translated from the Hebrew Old Testament, it will tell you that it may have an ongoing purpose. Here's an example. In um, Genesis 1, I can't remember the verse right now, but it might be 2 or 3 or 5, right, right at the beginning of Genesis 1, it says that stars are placed in the heavens along with the sun and the moon for what? For signs and for seasons. Okay, that is an ongoing thing. Okay, because we don't know when those signs are going to end. But once again, the signs are something that stand for something else. The seasons, we know. Every single year we have the seasons. And we can tell the seasons because of the movement of the sun and the moon and the stars. Right now, if you watch every day the uh, sunrise on the uh, webcam, you'll notice every day it's a little bit further off to, on the screen, it would be off to the left. And the reason why is because the sun is moving to the north. Okay, and eventually it's going to get to a point on the summer solstice and it's going to stop and it's going to start moving back this way. And the swing from Sarasota, Florida is much greater than, we'll say, other parts of the world. Depends on where you are in relation to the, uh, the um, uh, equator. But the swing goes literally like this much on your screen. If your screen is this wide, it's going to be right almost to the end over here and over to the end over here if it's pointing straight out. It's a big swing, but that is seasons. The sun and the moon and the stars are given for seasons. And that's why people all around the world built things like Stonehenge. They know when the sun is going to be there. And of course, they used it for the wrong reason because then they started worshiping these things. But they knew that it was a harvest time. And so they started worshiping the harvest gods and the sun gods, all that crazy stuff. But it was for a purpose of telling them when these times would come. The signs is different. Okay. God, and I don't want to get into astrology here. Astrology is not something we want to get into. But God put the constellations into the, the sky. Does everybody know that? Constellations are not man-made. How do we know that? They're in the Bible. Job talks about Orion and the bear, and there are other constellations that are referred to. We know that there's a purpose for them. Those are signs. Whatever the Lord is doing with those, uh, probably the best... Uh, Christian witness of that would be E.W. Bullinger. He did a book called Witness of the Stars. You can read it right online for free, E.W. Bollinger, Witness of the Stars, and he will tell you what he thinks these signs are for. It's not astrology. He's giving you what he thinks is a biblical panorama of what is going on in the heavens. And of course, he's obviously speculating to some extent, but he will do that for you. And there are other people that will look at these signs. Um, also, like I said, there are signs in the heavens, such as... When Jesus came, there was what in the sky? There was a star. And we know that it was a sign because it says that Magi came from the east to worship the Lord. So they knew that that star, and that's probably the, uh, the fulfillment of Balaam's prophecy where it says a star will come out of Jacob. Okay, but these are signs. They point to something else, always. They do not point to themselves. Okay, you see a star at a certain place and you say, well, oh, that's, that's it. That's not it. That is telling you something else is coming. I don't want to get into astrology here. I just want to let you know that God said on the first page of the Bible, 
that these are in the heavens for signs and for seasons, okay? And then the Lord will let us know afterward. We don't need to, you know, go uh, prophesying stuff and making stuff up in advance, which never comes out correct, all right? We know after the fact, and we'll say, oh, I see what the Lord has done. That's what we want to do. Don't get into, you know, predictions and signs and seasons or signs. Let the Lord reveal them to you after the fact, okay? That's my recommendation with that, so you don't get into crazy things. That's just better policy. Okay, the reason for that is it was made in the flesh by hands. He will explain the irony in the verses ahead, demonstrating, here it is, I read it a minute ago, that the external sign, circumcision, no longer meant anything at all. It is a thought which is comparable to many other verses in his letters, such as Romans 2.25, which I just took you to, okay, a person is not a, okay, the circumcision, and Romans 4.12. I didn't take you there, but we'll see what that has to say. Romans 4.12. Acts, Romans 4. I don't remember why I put that in there. 4.12. Oh, we're talking about Abraham and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So he was talking about Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised, not after. And so that's Abraham is a type of you and me. We're, we're declared righteous through faith in Christ, belief in what God promises, and not in circumcision, okay? And then 1 Corinthians seven nineteen, which I just read you a couple minutes ago about, um, uh, what was that, 1 Corinthians seven nineteen that Paul says, keeping the commandments of God, not uncircumcision or circumcision, that matters nothing, okay? It is the... Um, uh, the commandments of God are not the law of Moses. And then Galatians 5, 6, let me take you there. We'll see what that has to say. He talks a lot about this in the book of Galatians. That's the main theme of Galatians is circumcision and how it points to what Christ is going to do. Uh, Ephesians 5, 6, for faith in Jesus, Christ Jesus, neither in, let me read that again, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love, okay? And then in 6.15, he says, I'll go back to 14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And that is us if we have believed in the gospel message, okay? And then he also says this in Colossians 3.11. Let me take you there. And uh, as a matter of fact, Colossians 3, I just, something came to mind, which I'm going to skip. In Colossians 4, there's something, but 3.11 says, um, oh, what did it, okay, here it is. Let me take you back to 8. But now you yourselves are put off, uh, you are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Here it is. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So how many times has Paul said that? At least, um, let me see here, one, two, three, four, five, that's six. And there's probably more that I just didn't even think of at the time that I typed this commentary. Okay, six times. And yet people still insist that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. You must observe the feasts of the Lord and all of these things that the Hebrew Roots Movement 
people scare you into to say, well, you're not a good Christian or you're going to go to hell if you don't do these things. Once again, it's bondage. All right. So um, as far as the references in Galatians, they simply explain the thought which permeates most of the epistle. As I said, uh, circumcision in the book of Galatians is the benchmark. It is saying that if you have your, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. You've already been saved, and yet you're falling back on deeds of the law. And so because it is the benchmark, he could use anything as the same rationale. He just uses the most poignant thing in the Jewish society, which is circumcision. If you're not circumcised, nothing else matters to them. But that's the start of the Jewish society is the circumcision. So that's the benchmark. But as I said, you could use any precept from the law of Moses and come to the same conclusion. Sabbath observance, feast of the Lord observance. It says, and you must be going to hell, right? I mean, it's, think it through. Think it through. I'm not talking you. I'm talking when you're talking to them. Tell them to think it through, all right? Uh, and then what will they probably do? They'll probably go down to the store and buy tassels and put them on their clothes so that they're getting every point of the law instead of coming to Christ. Okay, so um, Paul's words are so clear and concise concerning this issue that it is more than a wonder how people can still find some type of elevated distinction in being circumcised in the flesh. But it happens every single day. If one is in Christ, if you are in Christ, and that means that you belong to Christ, God is looking at you through his son. That's all he's seeing is his son, and you are in Christ, okay? If one is in Christ, then circum circumcision of the flesh is nullified as a marker of distinction, because Christ is your marker of distinction. He is your marker of distinction. Life application. Where is your hope? Is it in a mark of the flesh? If so, then Christ's marks of the cross mean nothing to you. Is it in observance of the law, such as not eating pork? Then Christ's fulfillment of the law means nothing to you. His words, it is finished, are abrogated by your futile attempt to do what he has already done. Trust in Christ, rest in Christ, and be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Put away your useless deeds of the flesh. Just come to Christ. That's where it is. And, you know, the same, the same email that this person emailed me about said that, uh, uh, or maybe it was another one. I've gotten so many in the past couple of weeks on this issue. It's just like it's growing in the world. Uh, one of them said that you Christians put too much trust in grace. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine somebody even saying that? You put too much trust in grace. I can't even imagine thinking that thought. The Bible ends on the thought that may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Can you imagine somebody even saying that? You're not observing the law and you're condemned and you're putting too much. I, I, there is nothing good in Charlie Garrett. I don't care what deeds I've done in my life. I am completely, completely resting in the grace of Christ. There is no merit in me at all that I will say when I stand before the Lord, I deserve this. Nothing. Not one thing. I am trusting wholly and completely in what Jesus Christ has done. And I hope that you have the same attitude, because if you don't, there's something wrong with your theology. Verse 2.12. Okay, I'll start with 11 again so you get the full thing, because it's in the middle of a sentence. Therefore, remember that you once, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel 
and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This was the state of all people. When the law of Moses came in, that was where it was at. The hope was in the law. It was in what God was doing. But the law, once again, all as types and shadows anticipating Christ. But that was it. And he said, you had no hope. There was no hope for you in the world. And that's a sad place to be. Now, as I said, and I will stand firmly on this, Job was outside of the covenant people. And yet I am certain that he is saved. Why? Because his hope was in the Lord God. Okay. He was probably before the law of Moses about the time of uh, uh, Abraham through Isaac or Jacob in that time frame. But he, his hope was in the same Lord that Abraham was. Okay. And we know that because he is called, along with the people he went to stand with, a son of God. It is not speaking of angels sleeping with men, and it's not speaking of angels when it says the sons of God came before the Lord. It is talking about human beings that stood before the Lord presenting themselves because the same term is used in Joshua and elsewhere throughout the Old Testament that these people were meeting in the presence of the Lord and Satan came among them, not among the other angels. He came among the people that were meeting. Okay, and the New Testament confirms that because that's what Satan does right now. He comes in among the believers and he causes all kinds of trouble and trial in us. He, anytime we meet as a people, he's always there to harm it, especially when you preach on the beach. I can assure you of that because of the, the oh man, it, preaching on the beach was the most difficult thing. It was so difficult to do that. And the devil would just send in every possible thing to make our meetings impossible. And yet we got through them. Do you remember some of the times hey, she's shaking her head? Some of the times we had on the beach were, I, you, you'd be right at the point where, I remember one time I felt so bad. Sergio was there and I was talking about the Ten Commandments. And I, you know, I was just making a point about Christ and the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments. I said the Ten Commandments are a part of the law of Moses. And the law of Moses is obsolete. It is set aside. It is annulled. I said, that is it. There is no distinction between the moral commandments and the civil commandments, which people are always trying to make, okay? You hear that all the time. And why do they do that? Because they're scared to say that the Ten Commandments are fulfilled in Christ, okay? But the first thing that I would ask people to do when they come to that conclusion in their mind that the civil and the moral laws are separate is to say, then why aren't you observing the Sabbath? Because that's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. And all of them will say, well, and then they start coming up with all kinds of reasons why they don't have to observe the, the Sabbath, but all the other commandments are still binding. No, it's a codified whole. One part of the law represents the whole law, and it doesn't matter what part. If you violate one part of the law, the law is broken, according to James. So what is the answer? We can't kill people because the New Testament says we can't kill people. The New Covenant, okay? Paul says that explicitly. So nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Covenant, and so we're not supposed to do them. You're not going to be imputed sin for doing them, but you might get executed for doing them. So the best thing is to not do those things. But the, uh, as I was talking about that on the beach, and I got to the point where I said there's no difference between the civil law and the moral law. They are both annulled. A guy was with his wife. They had walked up to listen. He grabbed her and he walked away. And Sergio and I afterward felt so bad because I was only two sentences away from explaining exactly what I just told you. Is that we can't kill people because it's repeated in the new covenant. But Satan probably just wanted to have a field day with this family. And he thinks for the rest of his life, he's got to be obligated to the Ten Commandments. Well, you're obligated to nine of them because of the new covenant, but you're not obligated to them because of the 
law of Moses covenant, okay? But he didn't get that. Having said that, though, I've always felt that if I was on the beach and I heard somebody teaching something that I thought was wrong, I would grab my wife and leave too. So he did the right thing. He just did it too early, okay? He didn't find out the, the, the intent that I was making. And I felt that I still, this has been 10 years and I still feel bad about that. But there were times where we were at a church one time and, uh, you know, the pastor was gone and out walked a lady. And I said to Hedico, I opened the Bible and I showed her in the Bible where it, what it said. And I said, here we go. And out we walk because that's what the Bible says. Okay. Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, a lady for is a pastor. Okay. She was there to preach the sermon. I said, not going to be a part of that. Okay. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, oh, yeah. So I was reading um, uh, No Hope in the World. So I'll give you my comments on uh, verse 212 now. Okay. In one verse, Paul defines five conditions with which those outside of Israel were in. If considered in their proper light, the ramifications are actually terrifying. All people on earth, with the exception of those who are in a particular group of people, all of them were without Christ. As God is infinite and holy, and as man is finite and fallen, there is an infinite gap between the two. I mentioned that in the sermon, I think it was last week's sermon, where I said that, I, yeah, it was, when I talked about um, Jerry Nadler. And I said, that guy stands in the hands of an angry God. And I said, I don't, I don't want to misquote myself, but I said something like, uh, the same God that saved Charlie Garrett by an infinite act of grace can do that for Jerry Nadler as well, okay? But any sin infinitely separates you from a holy God. Any sin. And it's done. There's nothing you can do about it. And that is why the greatness of God and what he did in Christ stands for us, is because even if we sin now, we are not imputed sin. And that's the huge distinction between all other people and us. We have been cleansed of our sins, and so our sins are forgiven. But any new sins, because we are in Christ, we're in Christ, and we cannot be imputed sin because Christ cannot be imputed sin. That's 2 Corinthians 5.19. God is not imputing your sins to you. Because if he was, if he would impute your sins to you after salvation, you'd be lost as soon as you were saved. You would never, ever have a time in your life where you were saved and you knew that you were saved. It would never happen. But thank God for Jesus Christ and what he has done. I'll read that again. As God is infinite and holy, and as man is finite and fallen, there's an infinite gap between the two. There is no possible way to bridge that gap apart from Jesus Christ. There is no way. Without Christ, then means without access to God, because there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Then that's why Israel, I talked about it in a sermon just a couple weeks ago, they have all of these types. And when they would move away from the typology, they were moving away from what got them to God through Christ, because the typology was signs, anticipations of the coming Redeemer. So anytime they violated what was given in the law of Moses as far as their worship, the mode and means of worship, they were getting away from Christ. And, you know, you would hope that every year, at least they did the one thing they were supposed to do was go to the Day of Atonement and observe that, because if not, they were completely without hope. All right. Without Christ means without access to God. There was only birth into the stream of humanity apart from God because you're born sinful, a life of woe leading to death, life ending at death, and a continued and eternal separation from the Creator. 
That is the state of all people on this planet. All people. I'll read it again so you understand that. It means there was only birth into the stream of humanity apart from God, life of woe leading to death, life ending at death, and a continued and eternal separation from the Creator because God is infinitely holy. And your sin, in, whether it's inherited or whether it was committed, your sin eternally separates you from an infinite Creator. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Without Christ, there was and still is no hope. It is not that Christ was just not present with them as if they could call out to him and be reconciled to him. Instead, they were without him in the fullest sense. They had no part in him. He next notes that they were aliens, speaking of all the people in the world. And now, here, before we go on, let me get you to think this through so that you can get the point of why we have church. It's not to go in and get edified and to understand that you're going to have a good week ahead or you're going to be prosperous or anything like that. The purpose of church is to learn about Jesus Christ. It's to learn proper doctrine. And one of the purposes of church is to get the message of Jesus Christ out. Okay? And if you don't do that, and all the people you see walking around you, if they don't know Christ, they are not going to participate in what God is doing in the world. That's a burden that you bear in not telling people about Christ. Now, just this past week, I think it was uh, Saturday, and I started on Monday or whenever I, I started, I got in another whole box of tracks, okay, and I spent every night after working all day, right, while Hidako was cooking, I sat at the dinner table and I stamped probably 2,000 tracks with the superior word, okay? The track rack is full, okay? Don't be embarrassed to hand out a track. These people are going to die without Christ. If you can't talk to them personally, if you can't interact with them, then at least hand them a track, okay? That is what I recommend because these people need Jesus, and there's no hope for them apart from him, okay? He next notes that they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth means all of the benefits of. Israel is a commonwealth. They get all of the benefits of being in Israel because they are Israel, okay? We are without the commonwealth of Israel, and that means that we have no part in it. Okay, and Paul's going to speak about this elsewhere. Uh, maybe he's going to speak about it here in a couple minutes. Let me see. Where is he going to say this? Let me, uh, um, it's not going to be for a couple minutes, so I'll say this right now. Um, we, when we are in Christ, we are brought into the commonwealth of Israel. So we were without the commonwealth of Israel, and now we are brought into the commonwealth of Israel. That means that we receive all of the benefits and rights that Israel had with access to God, mediation, forgiveness of sins, justification by faith, all of those things. We now have access to that. Question for you. Does that mean that we are now Israel? I don't see one person saying yes. We've got a smart crew here. We are not Israel. We are brought into the commonwealth of Israel, okay? That does not mean that you're Israel. That means that you were brought into the wealth, the, the same benefits of Israel. By the very fact that he says we are brought into the commonwealth of Israel, it means that we are not Israel. Because if we were, then he wouldn't say we are brought into the commonwealth of Israel. Does everybody get that? He's making a distinction by using the term Israel. Israel is an entity. We are an entity. They have the commonwealth benefits. We are brought into the benefits, but we are not Israel. What a major theological error that people make when they say that the church has replaced Israel. 
We are now spiritual Israel. What a major error in theology that is. He notes that they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The word in Greek is a verb. It is not a noun. It reads, being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were out and they were kept out by the state they were in. With few recorded exceptions, this was the state of all people on this planet. Okay? When I say few recorded exceptions, you've got Rahab the harlot. You've got people that were brought in, uh, the Hittites. How do we know that? Because Uriah the Hittite. Okay, so the Hittites were not fully exterminated. He was brought in. Okay, and then his wife, Bathsheba, ended up marrying David. But we know that he was a part of Israel because he was one of the commanders of the King David's army. So these are things that happened. Certain people were brought into the commonwealth of Israel, but the number is very small as actually recorded in scripture. If you look at extra biblical readings, people are always saying, well, they're Edomites and they're this and they're that. Okay, I'll tell you something. I've said this in three or four sermons over the years, but it's always good to remember is that Edom, okay? Uh, uh, this is from the writings of, uh, begins with uh, John Hyrcanus. Okay, John Hyrcanus uh, documented in history that the Edomites wanted to participate in the ancient land. Okay, and so they were given a provision by Israel that said, if you will get yourself circumcised and observe the laws of the Jews, you will from that time after be a part of the Jewish people. Okay, they were brought into Israel. And it, he says in that, and I can send you the quote if you send it to me, it's just a little paragraph, but it says from that time afterward, they were always known as Israel. In other words, they were accepted into the people of Israel. But what happened when Israel was scattered? The Edomites went out with Israel because they're a part of Israel and they were all over the world. So people are always bringing up Edom in the end time scenario and they don't realize that Edom is part of Israel. So don't make these distinctions when you get into these prophecy conferences and all this kind of stuff and they talk about the Edomites. When the Bible speaks about people groups, ancient people groups, the Moabites and the Edomites in the future tense, he's speaking about the people that live in the lands where those people lived. Because most of those people groups were exterminated years and years ago, or like the Edomites, they were brought into the commonwealth of Israel. When he says the, uh, you know, he talks about Philistia, well, the Philistines are gone. That's Gaza, that's Ashkelon, all the places where they live now. It's speaking about the people that live there. It's not speaking about the people from the ancient times. So make sure you make that distinction in your, your uh, eschatology. When he refers to the Moabites or whatever, the Edomites, he's speaking about the people that are in that land. Specifically, that land would be Jordan. You've got a little south of there, but all that area is Jordan. And then you get into uh, other areas where these people groups were. Syria, you'll get some of them. That's what he's talking about, the people that are there now, okay? That's just a little side thing that came to mind, and it's good to get it out once in a while. Okay, so it reads, being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. There are very few exceptions outside of them. These people were born, they lived, and they died apart from access to God, which was provided through Christ to all who were of Israel's commonwealth, including the Edomites who were brought into Israel, were circumcised. And you know what? Does anybody here, can you tell me where it says that when you do those things, you will be a part of Israel? Can you tell me that? Because it's important to know that too. If somebody asks you, well, how can they be Israel? It's in Exodus 12, in the instruction for the Passover. Yes, let me take you back there just so you're aware of this. And uh, 
uh, it says here, I'm sure it's Exodus 12. Let me see if I can find this. If not, then um, uh, I'm sure it's Exodus 12. I'm in 13. It always helps to be in the right chapter. It says, um, it came to pass, um, um, where is it? Um, oh, Charlie, I know it's in, uh, no one. Oh, here it is, uh, verse 48. And when a stranger, this is speaking of the ordinance of the Passover from that time on. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover, let all his males be circumcised. That means because everybody in the household of a observant Jew had to be circumcised or they were to be cut off. That was goes back to Abraham in Genesis 17. All of your males must be circumcised, okay? So he says there in verse 48, and when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be, here it is, as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. The stranger that wants to become a part of Israel has to be circumcised, do what is required of the commandments, just like John Hyrcanus said, whatever the burden laid upon Israel, they assume that burden and they are now Israel. And that's why these people could be brought in like the Hittite uh, Uriah and like Rahab the harlot and all these other people. They could be brought in simply by observing and having the males circumcised. And they were brought into the Commonwealth of Israel, becoming Israelites. All of the women and all of the children of Midian, okay, female children, all the males were killed. But, and then later, some of the battles, the young males were allowed to live. It depended. The Lord gave the instruction, but all of those people were brought into Israel, and eventually they just became a part of Israel, okay? So uh, it's not that difficult, but it is something that had to be done in order to meet the qualifications. So what John Hyrcanus said about Edom is correct. It just is stated right there in Exodus 12. Okay, so the importance of being alienated, Paul's words, being alienated, rather than being aliens, is understood in the promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul's words, all the families of the earth shall be blessed through him. The alienation came from the fall. The commonwealth of Israel is a restoration of that. Until Christ came, this was the default position for all people outside of Israel. You are alienated from God. Default position. It should be noted that this is a spiritual not a national commonwealth. Paul explains this in Romans 9, 6, stating that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So it is a spiritual, not a national commonwealth. There are people that were in Israel at the time of Jesus that were not part of the spiritual body. Can anybody tell me who some of them are? Jesus spoke to them. You are of your father, the devil. He was speaking to the Pharisees. They were not a part of the spiritual people because their hearts were not circumcised. And even in the Old Testament, Moses said it, circumcise your hearts. Jeremiah repeated it, circumcise your hearts. If you were not circumcised in the heart, meaning if you were not a person that was believing in faith in the providence of the coming Messiah, you were not a part of Israel except in a national sense. Just like all of the Jews today, it's the same body of people. Think of them. Are they all saved? Are they all in this commonwealth that Paul is talking about? No. There's some of them that live, you know, lifestyles that are obviously not. And you go to Tel Aviv and the whole city is like that, right? But these people are secular for the most part. They don't believe in anything. But even those that do 
kind of hold on to the law of Moses in some form or another or petition to him when bombs start dropping on their heads, even those that do, guess what? They're not a part of this spiritual Israel because they have not come to who Israel of the old days anticipated. He has come. And if they don't believe in him, right now, the, the spiritual body we're talking about in Israel is a very small group of people, maybe hundreds of thousands, and that's it. They are the Messianic Jews that have come to know that Jesus is the Messiah. They are the spiritual Israel of today. And we are brought into that commonwealth that has existed, and it has always existed. Okay, after the exile, Paul says in Romans 9 through 11 that God always will maintain a remnant of faithful believers. And he cites the prophet um, Elijah, yet 7,000 if not uh, bowed the knee to Baal. And then he says, and to this day they exist. There are always going to be believing Jews because God said there would be. The spiritual commonwealth of Israel will always include some Jews, okay? And that's true throughout history. It, it's, there's documented cases. You go back and you read old writings and they'll say, that Jew, he left his people and became a Christian or whatever. You, you'll hear about it all the time. Um, so there you go. Uh, they are not all Israel who are Israel. How true is that today? They are collective Israel. They are national Israel, but they are not the spiritual commonwealth of Israel today. Okay, for those who lived by, and that, I have to say it again, I've said this before, I have to say it again, that is the problem with people like John Hagee, it's the problem with people like the Roman Catholic Church, they say, this is their stand, this isn't me, this is them that say that, they say that Jews are saved through adherence to the Torah, and that's why John Hagee does not try to evangelize or convert Jews, it's because he says they're saved through adherence to the Torah. And the Roman Catholic Church, in their doctrines, has that written down. I can find it if you want me to. I used to have the link, and then I lost it, and so it takes some research, but I can get it. They say that those of the Abrahamic faith are saved through adherence to the Torah, okay? That is condemning people to hell. That is not saving people, okay? That is the real problem with John Hagee. That's why I would never watch him, even if he had the best sermon on the best topic in the world. I could not watch him because of his doctrine. Okay, he is consigning people to hell through faulty doctrine. It's called um, dual covenant theology. Okay, this is the covenant of Moses. You can go to heaven that way. This is the new covenant in Christ's blood. You can get to the top of the mountain that way as well. I'm sorry, it does not work that way. Okay, for those who live by faith in the hope of Christ, they were set apart with this spiritual commonwealth, Jew and Gentile, enjoying the benefits that are derived from it. As a side note concerning this, oh, here it is. I talked about it, but here it is. If we are brought into the commonwealth of Israel through Christ, then it shows that we are not Israel. I said this earlier. Here my notes say it too. The church has not replaced Israel, but is brought into a right relationship with God through this spiritual commonwealth. Israel is Israel. The church is the church. There are Jews in the church. There are uh, you know Gentiles in the church. There are only Jews in Israel. Because if you don't observe what is told there back in Exodus chapter 12, then you're not a part of that Jewish body. Or the, at the time it was Hebrews. But, you know, Jew, somebody asked me this today, I think it was, uh, where does the term Jew come from? Oh, it was yesterday, and it was somebody I'm related to. Where does the term Jew come from? It comes from Judah. Okay, that became the predominant tribe and because that was the predominant tribe, it became just a word that was used. You're a Jew, meaning you belong to Judah. And that's you find that all over in the New Testament. The word Jew, 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 it comes from Judah. 
Okay, so that's it's that simple. All right. Um, to further highlight the plight, uh, the reason why I said that earlier, you know, that I just read you out of the notes, the church has not replaced Israel, but is brought into a right relationship, and we're not Israel. I know I said that earlier, but I don't know if I have these in my notes or not. I typed these years and years ago, and I do not sit and read them before Bible class. So if you hear something twice, it's because it came to mind, and I don't want to skip that point that I might not have in my notes. And then when I get to my notes and I see it's in there, then you had to hear it twice. I apologize about that, but maybe it'll help it sink in anyway. Okay, to further highlight the plight, he moves on to Paul's words, strangers from the covenants of promise. The Greek reads the promise. Further, the word covenants is plural, and the word promise is singular. That's an important point there. A promise was made right after the fall that restoration would be made and that man would be brought back into a right relationship with God. What verse was that, Burke? Right at the beginning. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It is verse Genesis 3. 15. 15. There you go. Good job. First, it's the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. Okay? A promise was made right, at, right after the fall that restoration would be made and that man would be brought back into a right relationship with God. After that time, a series of covenants was made in order for this to come about based on that one promise. So let me read you again, now that you understand what I'm saying. To further highlight the plight, he moves on from the strangers from the covenants, plural, of promise. The Greek reads, of the promise. Further, the word covenants is plural, and the word promise is singular. There is one promise all the way through redemptive history. One promise. But there are many covenants. Everybody see that? That is what Paul is trying to convey to us right now. After that time, a series of covenants was made in order for this to come about based on that one promise, the promise of the Proto-Evangelium. This is reflected in the words of Hebrews 1 verse 1. So let me read you that. Okay, here we go. Okay, 1 verse 1. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So he spoke to them in covenants, and he also spoke through prophets. Okay, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he is appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, etc. Okay, so the Gentiles were not a part of these covenants, and yet they were a part of the promise. Until Christ came, they had no hope in the world and were cut off from what Christ was doing through these covenants. You've got the covenant that was made to Adam. You've got the covenant that was made to Noah. You've got the covenant that then was made to Abraham. And then from Abraham, it really starts to get more defined. That's why I say Job could be in this back under Noah, because they were anticipating Christ at the time. He is the Messiah, and you're hoping Messiah. At whatever point in time of human history it is, is what will bring you into salvation. During the time of Noah, the hope in Messiah was a very broad hope. Anybody that had that hope, that knew the story that Noah told them, would have been in that, like Job. But then comes the promise to Abraham, and he says, in you will all the nations. So now it's getting further refined. And then he says to Israel, this is my covenant with you. It's being more defined. A smaller group of people is being chosen to bring in the Redeemer of the world. If you're outside of Israel, you are no longer looking forward to the Messiah that is being 
shown in Israel. Why? Because Israel is given all the typology. You must come through that particular typology because it all looks to Christ. And that's why it's getting narrower and narrower. And then comes along David and there's a covenant, the Davidic covenant. You've got all of these covenants. That is what Paul is speaking about here. Okay. The Gentiles were not a part of these covenants, and yet they were a part of the promise because the promise is from Genesis 3.15 when there were only two people on the planet. So they were a part of the promise, okay? Paul then notes that the state of these people was having, Paul's words, having no hope. They may have had thoughts about eternity, we all do, and indeed they wrote about and spoke about such things, just as non-believers do today. You'll find all kinds of non-believers. You know, um, I was talking about uh, the movie that I watched that somebody sent me the DVD to, which is I Can Only Imagine, right? And this was a Christian that wrote the song, and that's his hope in Jesus. But I've been to, I've done quite a few funerals for friends in high school. A wife died, a child died, whatever, and I go to do the funeral, and they don't know Jesus at all. They just need a preacher, and Charlie is the guy. So they call me and say it. And what do they always play there? I can only imagine. They have a hope. It's just not the hope because they don't understand what God is doing. Okay? And so whenever I do something like that, I always speak about Jesus. I don't care if a person there is saved or not. It doesn't make any difference to me. I mean, it does in the sense that I hope that they're saved. But it doesn't matter. If they've asked me to come and do that service, they're going to hear the gospel. That's all there is to it. So, yeah. And I did that to one of my friends that I haven't seen her in. She was probably 30 years, and she called me a couple months ago and said, my mom died, would you do the funeral? So, yeah, I went out there and did it. And I, the people there, there were people that were, you know, all they did, they gave, stood up and they gave their testimony about the lady, and all they did was talk about getting drunk. That's all they talked about. And there was nothing about, you know, we, it was it just whatever, but they got the gospel. I hope they paid attention. However, these were and are merely speculations, talking about the people that have a hope some funny hope about God. They're speculations and they are fanciful wishes which are not based in reality. Okay? The word hope here doesn't mean an expectation of. Today, Muslims who blow themselves up in the name of their false god have an expectation of paradise, but it is not one based in God's reality. See the difference? The hope Paul refers to is a certainty of that which is offered by the one true God through Christ. It is not a hope in the sense that, oh, I hope that this gets me up to paradise. That's not it. We have a hope that goes beyond that. It is, when we use the word hope, it's not, oh, I hope I make it to heaven. This is my hope. It is a certainty, and we know it's coming. It's just we have to go through the process of getting there. Uh, Who was it? Um, uh, The guy in the wheelchair um, that just died a couple years ago had the, the, Christmas light show every year. What was his name? Chuck. That's right. Chuck, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. We have to go through these things, right? None of us, if you're a Christian, you would have no care about dying because it's, you know, to to die is gain, right? It's just you don't want to be there when it happens. Well, anyway, Chuck was a funny guy. Okay, the hope Paul refers to is a certainty of that which is offered by the one true God in Christ. The Gentiles were in this terrible state and were condemned already. Jesus' words, John 3:18, if you don't believe in the Son, you're condemned already. This isn't God's fault. People love, love to play, put the blame on God. They love to say, well, what, what an unfair God. He only gives one path. I'm surprised he gave one. 
You know, you go look in the mirror and you see yourself in the morning and you, there are other people that look in the mirror and they think I'm a pretty good guy. I never feel that way. I used to, but boy, now that I know my state before an infinite creator, I'm surprised there's even one way. Okay, we're condemned already according to John 3.18. Finally, Paul notes that they were without God in the world. They had God in the general sense of receiving his goodness and rains. We just got some a little while ago. It rained all over here. There are people out there that got rain that don't know Jesus. There are people that do know Jesus. Okay, that's grace. It's unmerited favor. We got rain, and God shows his goodness through it. Okay, we get sunny days. We get a lot of them in Florida. I feel, you know, I get these letters from people or emails or things, and they tell me, oh, it's, it's May 15th, and it's 32 degrees, and it's snowing, and I think... You know, it's not that hard to get in your car and pack things up and move to Florida. <laughs> you know, but I understand people love their homes. They get into the summer and if, if this is for people that aren't in Florida, okay? I'm saying this now for people that don't live here. If you go mow your grass in Florida, all you smell is this gross grass. It doesn't have a nice smell. But when you mow grass up north, well, you guys know you just came from North Carolina. It smells so sweet. It, it's the nicest smell. You drive down the road and you can say, oh, somebody just mowed their grass. Man, you get out here and you're like, it's just gross. There's no nice smell. I mean, we got other nice smells, but it is not grass. And I understand people love the spring up there and they love the summer. But then I hear all winter long, it's 14 below zero and it's been great for 97 days. And I think, I'm glad I don't live there. I'll take the heat and the stinky grass compared to that. Anyway, um, where was I? Let's see. Yeah, his goodness in rains, sunny days, blue skies, good smelling grass if you're up north, and so on. These things reveal God and make us aware of his nature. But what is, but, oh, yes, but what Paul is referring to is the connection to him, which comes through Christ. Christ, the mediator, is what allows us to be with God. Paul's word with in the fullest sense, to be children of God, Paul's words again, through adoption, and to have the eternal inheritance that he offers through Christ. Through him, these five terrifying states of existence are obliterated. We now have full access because of what he has done. And yet, today, people voluntarily exist in the state that at one time they had no choice of participating in. That's the sad part about it, is that there are people, you tell them about Jesus, and they don't want to know. One of my friends today, I, he works down at Lowe's, and I was at Lowe's buying some stuff, and uh, he came up, haven't seen him in a while, and he had a mask on his face because he has to work at Lowe's, and I didn't recognize him because he's gotten old. He's got gray hair. I'm like, oh my gosh. Anyway, it's only been a year, but it happens to us. Anyway, he, uh, he sh and we had a talk, and he was saying that one of his, one of the people that he, uh, uh, sees from time to time as a Jewish guy. He says, I really want to tell him about Jesus, but I just don't know what to say. And I said, you know what? It's a really hard thing to tell Jews about Jesus because they are one lied to by their, their uh, rabbis. And one thing about Jewish people, they may be the most secular people on the planet, but they all have been to synagogue. It's like when we were born and they take you and get you christened at some church or something. You know, there's just things that we do. Even if we don't believe a thing, they all have that grounding because they're Jewish. Every one of them, okay? And they've heard in the synagogues that, uh, you know, one of the things that they taught about um, the Trinity is that it's the Father, Son, and Mary. That the Father, you know, and Mary were, 
and that's I said that's not correct when I talked to a Jew about that. I had to correct him on that. There are other things that uh, they they will say that are not true, and one of the things that they will not show them is Isaiah 53. It's not read in the synagogues. It, it's called the forbidden passage, okay? And I told him, if you want probably the best way, the best hope that you have, because they already have this wall up. Christians are bad people. You know, it's okay to live in Christian nations. It's okay to be their friends, but they are not your people. They are bad in the sense that they are not you. And so there's always going to be a divide there. This is what the, the, the what am I saying? The synagogues will put up this wall between them that always exists because we have persecuted them all these years, etc. So I told him, if you just want to at least get him to think about Jesus without evangelizing, because if you evangelize him, you've already got the wall up. The only person that can tell somebody about Jesus directly is a Jew that's already come to Jesus. You really can't because the wall is there. So I said, what you do is just print off Isaiah chapter 53, take out the verse numbers and just have the text. And I said, when he comes, just hand it to him and say, you know, I've thought about you for the longest time, and I want you to read this, and I want to know what you think about it. Who is this speaking about? And guaranteed, every single Jew, when you see them do this on the video at One for Israel, they do it in Israel, every single Jew that reads it, every one of them, yes, they say, oh, that's Jesus. And then they tell them where it came from, not first, because if you tell them first, they're going to have that block up. But if you let them put themselves into that position, they say, well, that's Jesus. Then you say, well, do you know where that came from? Well, no, I've never read that before. But you know who he is, yes. Well, that's in your scriptures. And they, most every Jew has a copy of the Tanakh at home. Go take it out and read what you just read here and see if it's not the same. And that is, let scripture do the witnessing for the Jew. Because you are going to fumble over your words and you're not going to have the right things to say 99% of the time. I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but it might. Um, the reason why I'm saying this is because we're not going to get another verse in and I've got to kill five minutes. So let scripture convert the Jew. We'll finish up this and we'll be done. Through him, these five terrifying states of existence are obliterated. We now have full access because of what he has done. And yet today, people voluntarily exist in the state that one time they had no choice in participating in. God has offered the restoration of all things to us if we will simply receive them by faith. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. And yet we as humans will do anything to set aside this grace, exactly what I said at the beginning of this class about the Hebrew Roots Movement people, anything to set aside this grace and establish our own connection to God, our own righteousness before God, something which is impossible. It's not possible to do. Life application, and we are done. In Christ, we who were once far off are not now brought near to God. Let us never forget the magnitude of what he has done for us. Thank God for Jesus Christ, who is willing to bring us back to himself, or bring us back to himself as the, the divine God. The human Christ came to reconcile us to his divine nature, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead. It's just amazing what God has done to allow us to participate in this. And we should be forever grateful for what God has done in Jesus Christ. What a great and wonderful God. Um, do I have time for this? we got four more minutes. Um, who are not now. Who says who are not now. What? We, we are not now part of the. We are now part of what God has done. I don't know if I, said, if I said not, then I didn't mean that. Because obviously, you know, I say things that... Uh, 
off the top of my head and I, you know, I have one thing on my mind and it should be clear and maybe I say something that okay. is a little bit off, but what I mean is what I mean and when people take it wrong, then obviously it's, uh, if I explain it and I say this is what I meant and okay. they don't accept that, then I can't help them because, you know, sometimes you say things and, and uh, anyway, so we'll hope that people will be uh, understanding when somebody says things, when you define it and you tell them this is what I meant, that they will accept it at face value. Okay, Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, uh, the wonderful blessing of what you have done in Jesus Christ. We thank you for how he came to reconcile us to you through his shed blood. And we thank you, wow, we are in Christ, and therefore we are not being imputed the sins of the flesh. What a wonderful blessing, because I'm sure each person here is feeling that the weight of the sin that they've committed over the past few days or the past weeks, and they've done something wrong, and, and without Christ, that weight would be crushing. But because of Christ, the imputation is not there, and all we have is just the memory of what we did and knowing that it offended you. And so help us to live lives that are proper and right. But when we fail you, we thank you that we're already forgiven. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord, who has reconciled us to you. And thank you, Lord, for this precious word, which tells us of these things. We praise you, we love you, and we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen.